Saints. Now, I do have to make a confession here. I just had said two weeks ago, and I will not go into all the reasons, uh, that I was going to use the New American Standard, and I switched to the ESV. I could switch again. I don't know. Uh, that's what I'm, I'm, I'm testing things out right now. And uh, I, I will give you an explanation here uh, one of these days. And uh, But I think that's what I, we, we will do throughout this this study. And uh, I was talking to Jackie. She just bought a Bible. We were talking about translations and everything. You know, the problem, and this is a great problem to have, is that in English and at this point in our country and in our time, we have so many good translations of the Bible that it is very, very hard to pick uh, just one. And uh, about the time you pick one, you run across a verse, you compare it to others, and it's probably the curse of the uh, uh, Bible, pro, uh, the computer uh, programs for Bible study, because you can compare six different translations, and you're like, oh, I, you know. And so I think what I'm going to do is like cut and paste and create, you know, look every verse of the Bible, compare it to six translations, pick out the one, you know, and uh, you know some preachers preach that way, uh, but uh, no, I, I think. That's, this is what we're going to do. And one of the reasons, I will give you one reason. One reason is memorization. I'm discipling a guy, and uh, I was, uh, we were looking and discipling, and, and uh, we were memorizing and uh, comparing uh, me memorizing the New King James versus he was memorizing the ESV. And it was like, wow, that says exactly the same thing, but that is far easier uh, to memorize and get in my head. So anyway, just to give you the heads up. Uh, but I think we'll be fine with this. Look at the top of your notes. Uh, today's lesson, God the Jew and you too. Okay, we're going to have fun. This is going to be a good lesson, and this really gets us into Romans 9. Notice what uh, old Napoleon, your good buddy, the French emperor, said. The best way to keep one's word is not to give it. Okay, can you relate to that? <laughs> There's a lot of truth in that. And then uh, someone else said, a promising young man should go into politics so that he can go on promising for the rest of his life. Okay? And the reason that's funny is because many times politicians what? Promise something and don't keep it. Promise something and don't keep it. Listen, we live in a culture where making promises is common, but keeping them is rare. Would you agree? And in some ways, we've become hardened to the reality that many people, perhaps most people, don't keep their promises. Their words fail. They fall to the ground. They fall short of what is promised. Their word can't be trusted, and therefore they cannot be relied on to be there when you need them. Now, this is, this is true in work. This is true in our relationships. This is just true when you're interacting with people. But when we enter the realm of God, this disconnect between promises made and promises broken becomes a very big deal. Because when we enter the realm of God's promises, everything changes. After all, it's one thing for us as fallen, weak human beings to promise something and fail to do it. We can always fall back and say, hey, I'm not perfect. You know, I couldn't control the circumstances. I tried, but I just couldn't do it. Well, that all works for us, but that doesn't work when it comes to God's 
promises. Here's the question. Can God be trusted to keep His promises? Can God be trusted to keep His promises? Everything. And that's what you want to put there. Everything. Everything in Romans 9 through 11 hinges on the answer to that one question. That's the question that's brought before us as we study Romans 9 through 11. Let me show it to you. Let's read Romans 9 verses 1 through 6. I want to get us to 6, but here's the beginning of Romans 9, 1 through 6. It starts off pretty powerfully, pretty emotionally. I am, and it's Paul that is speaking. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. My kinsmen according to the flesh. Now, this is very interesting. We'll get in this uh, in a moment. When he says my brothers here, the word for brothers is a word that every other time Paul uses it, it's brothers in Christ. It's brothers that are not related by blood. It's brothers in Christ. This is the only place in all of his letters that he uses this word for brothers related by blood. And that's why he adds that phrase, my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul was a Jew, and so therefore he's referring to his Jewish brethren who are not saved, and yet he's related to. Okay, And he says, I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But, and here's verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. It is not as though the word of God has failed. You could say it simply, it is not as though God has failed to keep His promises. Do you see what he's building up? And this is what our lesson will explain. He's saying this, look, here's my Jewish brethren who have all these promises, all these privileges, and yet they're separated from Christ. But it is not as though God has not, it is not that God has broken his promises. Now, here's the significance of what we just read and of just the idea, can God be trusted to keep his promise? If God can't be trusted to keep his promises or... If it can be proven that God has broken His promises at any time in the past, or it can be shown that He will not completely fulfill His promises in the future, if you could show that at any point in the past God has broken a promise, or that He will not completely fulfill it, if that occurs, then there's three conclusions that we can draw from that. First of all, then God is not who He claims to be. Would you agree? 
If God breaks His promises, then that means God lied or God is in unable or not powerful enough to fulfill His word. You see, keeping one's word is tied to one's character. Would you agree? This is true for God as it is for us, perhaps even more so because God's perfect, He's righteous, He's true in all He says and does. Now turn your Bibles to Hebrews. Let's look at Hebrews 6, a great passage that talks about God making promises to Abraham, making promises to the children of Israel, and how it relates to his character. This is a great verse. Let's look at Hebrews 6, 13 through 18, and notice what it says. When God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Now he's going to explain why God swore by himself. Notice what he says. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. In other words, you're, you're ta talking with someone, you're saying, hey, will you do this? Yeah, I'll do it. No, no, really. Will you do this? Yes, I said I would do it. Will you do this? Yes, I swear I will. You know, and you can swear on your mother's grave. You swear on the Bible. You swear whatever. I swear I'll do it. And what do you? What happens then? Okay. All right. All right. That's what he's saying. So, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose. So, God has a purpose, and that purpose is unchangeable. But he says, look, I want to just even convince you. I'm not in doubt, but I want to convince you. He guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Now, a couple things there. What are the two unchangeable things? The two unchangeable things in that passage is God's purpose to bless Abraham and Israel and Gentiles through that. It's God's unchangeable purpose and God's unchangeable character because He swears by Himself. Those are the two unchangeable things. But notice, that purpose is to Abraham and his heirs, but it's also strong encouragement for us. So when God keeps His promises... That's not only a good thing towards Israel, but it's a good thing towards us. Why? Because God's made promises to who? Us. To us, too. Okay, so we're going to look at it. So, notice, based on this verse, we can reference the great theologian Forrest Gump. You, I'm sure you've read him. <laughs> who put it this way, stupid is as... Yeah, see, some, some of us know Gump better than uh, Galatians. <laughs> you know, uh, Stupid is, stupid does. So let's change that a bit because we don't want to base our theology on force. God is as God does. Or you could say God does as God is. That's the idea. Character and promise keeping are tied together. So here's the point. If God has broken His word or has not kept His promises to His people, Israel, then He's no longer God. He is unrighteous, he is untrue, he is a liar. It says right there, listen, it's guaranteed so that two unchangeable things in that God cannot lie. God cannot lie. Or the whole 
the whole creation implodes. Our total world view, our entire gospel hope, no missions conference if God has lied. No, no, none of these things. Now, notice, He is God, and, and he, if, if He's broken His word, then He's a God that can't be trusted to keep His promises to anyone or anything, and His, and his word on anything can't be counted on. So, if God can't be trusted, then He's not who He claims to be. Secondly, if God cannot be trusted to keep His promises, then Israel has no future hope of salvation as a chosen people. Israel has no future hope of salvation as his chosen people. Why do I say that? We have already read two passages that reference God making promises to Abraham. I want you to turn to Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Because in Genesis 12, do you realize you only have to read 12 chapters into the Bible? Here's a book of 66 books that tells the story of history and eternity, and you only have to read into it 12 chapters till you get to Genesis 12, 1 through 3, and you find God makes a promise to one man, and everything from the Bible flows from this passage. Everything you read from here on out for the entire rest of the Bible flows from and is founded on this threefold promise that God makes to Abraham. It's called the Abrahamic covenant. A covenant is a promise made between two people. In this case, God is the only one making the promises. It's an unconditional promise. Here's what it says. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I would circle land. And I will make you a great nation. I would circle great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I would circle blessing. There's the threefold promise. You will have a land, you will have a people, a seed, and you will have a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You can just read those three verses and know which of those three, uh, uh, there's three promises, but which one is emphasized the most? Blessing. How do you know that? It's repeated three times, okay? It doesn't mean the other ones aren't important. It just means that's where the the real blessing comes, is in the blessing. Okay, so let's see it. God's threefold unconditional promise to Abraham. Number one, a land. A place of God's choosing. A land. He says, go to the land that I uh, I will show you. In other words, I'm going to choose it. Number two, a seed. A seed. As we go through these promises in the Old Testament, you see that this great nation begins with a seed because at this point, Abram does not have any children. And we're going to see that eventually he's going to be so old that he can't have children. And his wife is going to be so old that she's in menopause. She can't have children. And so this is a miraculous, unbelievable, unconditional, sovereign promise that I'm going to give you seed. I'm going to give you seed, and that's going to be implanted in her womb that that is incapable of life, and you don't have any seed, but I'm going to give it to you, and she doesn't have any life in her womb, and I'm going to put that together, and you're going to have a child. And that child's going to become a great nation. Number three, you're going to have a blessing. 
So you're going to have a place of God's choosing. You're going to have a people of God's choosing. It's got to be God because they are going to be incapable of having kids. And the blessing is this, the presence of God as their God. The presence of God is their God. Notice in your notes it says, The promise to Abraham and his seed is progressively revealed in the Old Testament as basically this one promise, and it's there in your notes. I will be your God, and you will be my people. If you take land, seed, blessing, land is a place, seed is a people, And the blessing is God's presence. You put that together and you trace it through the Old Testament, which we have no time to do. I'm just giving it to you. Here's God's promise. God promises to Abraham and the people of Israel that His presence will dwell with His chosen people. He's just now chose Abram. In His chosen place, the land that He's going to show him, by His chosen power, it's going to be done in the power of the Spirit and through the Word of God, through His chosen person, who eventually we will see is Jesus Christ, for His chosen purpose, which is to glorify Him. Now, that's everything that God promises. That's, that, that's the Bible. That's our lives. That's why we're here today. We are God's people gathering in God's place, the local church, to enjoy dwelling in the midst of God's presence by the power of the Spirit for the, through the person of Christ for the glory of God. Now, if God does not keep His promises, then the nation of Israel has no hope of the land that He's promised. See, does he, do, do they have the land? Yeah, yeah. But, uh, and they have a people, but do they have God's presence dwelling among them? No. And as we just read, they've even rejected God. So things aren't working out yet. They won't have a land, they won't have a seed, and they'll miss out on the greatest blessing of all if God does not fulfill His promises. Now, at this point, in this lesson, you might say, well, I feel bad for Israel, but that's between them and God. I'm not a Jew, but a Gentile. But more than that, I'm a believer in Jesus. In other words... I've got my eternity covered. I feel bad for them because I wouldn't want to say anything different. That would be selfish. But let's be honest. Uh, I certainly am not as grieved as Paul appears to be in verses 1 and 2. I accepted the one they rejected. Hey, they had their chance. And do you realize that some Christians and theologians go so far as to say that the church has replaced Israel? and that the church is the true Israel of God. In fact, the vast majority of good, godly men who study the Bible, probably the vast majority in this country, many would say the church has replaced Israel. We're the true Israel of God. We accepted Him. They rejected Him. They had their chance. God is done with them. And in preparing for the weeks to come, I've done some reading this week, and I have read statements, and I will share these with you. And they are quite shocking on how definite some Christians say these things about God's chosen people. They had their chance, they chose to reject, they're getting what they deserve. But that's missing the very point that Paul's trying to make in these three chapters. God, the Jew, and you too are all tied together in God's saving purposes. If he's done with them, then guess who else he might get done with? You. Oh, now suddenly I'm interested. Suddenly I want to study Romans 9 through 11. Because suddenly it centers on who? Me. Me. You. Me. God, the Jew, and you too. You see, 
if God's broken His promises to the Jews, then He's not only God, and they not only have no future hope as a people and a nation dwelling in God's kingdom, as we read in Genesis 12, then we too have no eternal security as believers. We have no future hope either because God's unrighteous and He could go back on His word. So, if God cannot be trusted to keep His promises, then you too, as Gentile believers, have no eternal security. You have no eternal security because what is your eternal security based on? God's promises. And God's promises are based on His character. And if He's lied, then His character can't be trusted. He can't be trusted. The Jews are not only out of luck, but it means that potentially we too. You say, well, He's kept His promises thus far. Well, He did with Israel too for a while there, it seems. So what makes you think and what makes me think that the church... And by the way, Israel really blew it in doing what God wanted them to do. Do you think the church is doing that much better? Comparatively? We need to study church history if you think not. You, know, you, know, you study church history and you're like, whoa. So what are we banking on? Listen, we have no internal theory. So turn to Romans chapter 8. Because after all, that comes before Romans 9. And there's a connection between the two. So notice what Romans 8 says. Listen, if God cannot be trusted to keep His promises, then we cannot claim these glorious promises of Romans 8.28. And we know that those who love God, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Boy, we love that verse. But that verse is built on God's promise and God's character. For those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brother, brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Those are wonderful promises. That's our eternal security. But it's all based on God keeping His promise. Drop down to 38 through 39. This is what we really like. Paul says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Man, we just get goosebumps reading that, don't we? Don't we get it? We love that stuff. But it's all based on a God you can trust to keep His promises. We can't, listen, we can't claim any promises in the Bible if God does not keep His promises to anyone or anybody. He cannot be trusted. Oh, we can claim the promises, but we cannot count on God to fulfill them. Okay, so, when it comes to keeping His promises, God, the Jew, and you two are all tied together. That's what Romans 9-11 through 11 is all about. So let's dive into this and show you how this develops in the text. First of all, can God be trusted to keep His promises? The first thing I want you to see is that our promises that God has made to us in Romans 8 are tied to what he just said in Romans 9. Notice, promises made the wonderful eternal security for us as Christians. So Romans 8 is filled with the wonderful 
promises of eternal security made to Christians. Um, Man, uh, Romans 8, uh, take a look at Romans 8 verse 1. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The very first promise is that there's no more fear of eternal punishment. No more condemnation. No more control by sin. No more continuance in sin. That's Romans 8, 1 through 4. That's awesome. He's promised His presence in the indwelling Spirit, uh, by the indwelling Holy Spirit, as proof that we're saved in the power to overcome sin. That's, that's verses 5 through 13. Then He promises us the privilege of being adopted as His sons. And when you're adopted to God's family, that means He no longer treats you as a sinner, He treats you as a son. Greatest blessing. Greatest blessing. But here's the three that I want to highlight. Well, let me say this, though. Um, Drop down to verse 17. Well, uh, yeah, drop down to 17. He has just said that we have this wonderful blessing of being God's sons, but notice the condition. Because, see, we always forget these things. We always skip over these things. And if children, then heirs. See, the great thing about being God's child is you inherit everything that the Father Owns. And what does God own? Everything. Everything. So what are you going to inherit? Everything. That's awesome. Right? If children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided, oh my gosh, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may be glorified with Him. So we liked it up until that word, suffering. Because I don't know about you, but my life gets hard and is hard. Maybe not as hard as yours, maybe easier than the next guy, but for me, it doesn't matter. You know, it's my life and it's hard. Your life is hard. To follow Christ is hard. And we get discouraged. But God then follows up this, you know, it's required. We got to suffer with Him to glorify, to be glorified with Him. But then He gives these wonderful promises, and these are the three I want to highlight. God has promised to providentially work all things together for good. So, yeah, we got to go through hard times, but God has providentially promised to work all things together for good. That's what it means, work all things. In God's providence, His ability to be rule over all circumstances and make them come out to His intended purpose for those who are called according to His purpose. Secondly, God has promised that He has predestined us to future glory. He has predestined us. That's what's Romans 29 through 30 is. Look at, look at 29 through 30. How do we know we're going to be glorified someday? How do we know that we're going to be fully saved one day? It all begins with God's foreknowledge in predestining us to become like Christ. Listen, we're going to get into this topic in the weeks to come, predestination. And it's going to get uncomfortable. But before you reject it, understand what you're rejecting. You reject it in this area, then you can't have it in this area. See, I, I, I don't want it when I choose. I want the choosing to be mine for salvation, but I want Him to keep me. Okay? I mean, we got to be careful. I mean, all I'm saying is we love predestination. Why? Because it secures our salvation. Can I hear an amen? amen. That's what we need to get. Okay, so this topic 
is very personal, very practical, and very real. Now, the third thing I want you to see, He's promised to preserve us for future glory. He's promised to preserve us for future glory. That's what it means in verses 31 through 39. Nothing can separate us. Nothing, nothing. So, 28 is God providentially working through circumstances to bring the yuckiest thing in your life out for His good and our glory. 29 through 30... Is it 29 through 30? Help me out. Yeah, 29 through 30 is how He's predestined us to that outcome. And then He knows that between now and then there could come a lot of junk. And that's a Christian way of saying, you know what? Okay, a lot of stuff. Because stuff happens. And some, most of it's bad. That's 31 through 39. He begins in verse 31, nothing can separate us. He ends in 39, nothing can separate us. Now, is that, that, that's worth coming just this morning for, is it not? And you would expect Paul to end with something like Romans 7.25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Right? You would expect him to say that. Or you would expect him to say something like Romans 11, 33 through 36. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To God be the glory. Amen. Doesn't that, isn't that your heart after you study something like this? Or you would expect him to end with Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Look at all he's done for you you. Go live for Him. Be a living sacrifice. This is all that you would expect, but what do you get? What do you get? Romans 9.1 I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow. Man, you're thinking gladness and He's saying sadness. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my Jewish brethren. Huh? Where did that come from? Well, I tell you where it came from. Point two. Privileges given. Promises made to us as Christians. But let's look at privileges given, and as I thought more about this, Let's say it this way, privilege is given, but the promised one rejected. That's probably, I, I need to be a little more complete there. Privilege is given, but the promised one rejected. The woeful, eternal separation of, God, of, of Israel. So you've got Christian security in Romans 8, but you have Jewish eternal separation, because that's what he means, and we'll talk more about this next week. Accursed from Christ means what? That's just kind of the Bible way, Bible talk of saying eternal punishment in hell. Separated from Christ. So you've got the wonderful security for Christians. You've got the woeful eternal separation for many Jews. And here's what you got in Romans 9, 1 through 5. It's filled with Paul's pain over Israel's plight in light of God's many promised privileges. I know that's a lot of peas, but I like them. Because it makes sense. 
Paul's pain, 1 and 2. Over Israel's plight, verse 3, they are lost. In light of their many privileges, verses 4 and 5. See, there is a madness to my alliteration. Maybe it's only my madness, but it makes sense. Here's what's going on in verses 1 through 5. Paul's brothers, according to race, who, as the people of Israel, have all these privileges that God has promised to them in His Word, but have for the most part rejected Christ and are cursed to eternal separation from Christ. Wow! Let's look at the privileges. Because the privileges heightens Paul's pain. And it brings up the question, in light of these privileges, and in light of their rejection, did God break His promises? Alright? Because after all, didn't I say that God made the promise unconditionally in Genesis 12? Which means regardless of what how they behave, God will keep His promises, but it seems that He has. So let's look at the privileges, and we will go through these. First of all, the first privilege, look at verse 4. He says, My kinsmen, according to the flesh, the first privilege, they are Israelites. So here's, here's the, first privilege, or the, the, the main idea. The Jews are Israel, God's chosen people. That's, that's the crux. I mean, if you ask any, you even ask someone who's never been, well, maybe that's, we've gotten so secular, but you ask most people, unsaved or not, who are God's chosen people? What are they going to say? The Jews. They're just going to say, they may not know what they mean by that, may not understand it, but they're going to say the Jews. And that's what Israel means. Pastor Bruce just recently preached on Genesis 35, but uh, it, where Jacob, God, sovereignly, calls Jacob and names him, wrestles with him, allows him to win. And uh, in, in that winning, he names him. Your name is no longer Jacob, it is Israel. And that means you are my chosen people. Let me take you to Deuteronomy 7, just to give you a little flavor. Deuteronomy 7. Bruce just preached on, on, on uh, Genesis 35. Let's move forward to Deuteronomy 7. And this, while the word Israel is not used here, this is the, this is the meaning of it. This is, this is the idea. When God chose Abraham and when he named Jacob Israel, this is basically what he's saying. Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 11. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God and here's the key. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession. Out of all of the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. For you were few in you were the fewest of all peoples. In fact, not only were you the fewest of all people, but when I chose your father Abraham, he was a pagan, moon-worshipping... I got that backwards. He was a moon-worshipping pagan. And I chose him. And I called him. And he put his faith in me. And in my word. And this is how it happened. 
So it had nothing to do with who they were. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So all, all I'm saying there is the greatest privilege on the planet is to be God's people, and that was promised to Israel. Now, out of that belongs three things, and let me give you what they are, and you can fill them in. To whom belong the privileges, the patriarchs, and the promised one? That's what he says. He says, look, you've got these privileges of... You've got these privileges, and he lists six of them. And then he says, not only that, but you've got the patriarchs. And who are they? Well, at least they are Abraham. Give them to me. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Alright? And you have the promised one who is who? And or, or you know, he is the Christ who in who in fulfillment and in history is actually who? Jesus. Right? We think Christ is his last name, but it designates him as the Christ, okay? It, it did become his last name. It really did, because that's just who he is. Now Let's, so, do you see that in your notes? To whom belong the privileges? To whom belong the patriarchs? From whom is the promised one? Now, it says, to whom belong the privileges? I gave you verses. I, we, we cannot read all those. I, I wish we could, because there's power in reading the Word of God. The first is the adoption of sons. Does that sound familiar from this lesson? Did I just mention that earlier? What did I say about it? What does Romans 8 say about the adopt? Who, who's the adopted sons in Romans 8? We are. But who is it promised to? And who is it? does that promise still belong to? It says who are. It doesn't say who were. It says who are to whom belongs the adoption. So we're sharing in something that belongs actually to who? Israelites. To the Israelites. And then that adoption means you get to be a part of God's family, which means you get to enter into His glory, the glory of His presence and His eternal kingdom. When you're in God's family, you're an heir. That means you're prince and princesses, and that when His kingdom reigns in glory, you get to bask in that glory as the sons of the king, to whom belong the covenants... The covenant to Abraham, Moses, David, the new covenant, all the promise, the new covenant that we share in, the Lord's Supper, all of our salvation, who does that belong to? It belongs to Israel. The giving and the safekeeping of the law, and that's a good thing because it was God's instruction on how to live in God's holy presence. The temple service, and you trace this word out in Exodus, you see that it refers first and foremost to the Passover. And who did that point towards? Jesus, and then finally the promises, and that's the ultimate, the promises especially concerning the coming Christ. So they had these tremendous privileges, which, by the way, we're sharing in. And Romans 8 basically says, we're hoping for. Now, he says, to whom belong the patriarchs? Well, that's, in other words, to whom belong the patriarchs? Hey, they can lay claim to these three guys in a way that we can't. How can they lay claim to them? DNA. Blood DNA. Can you do that? Well, no, I can't unless I'm Jewish. 
Third, from whom is the promised one? From whom? Now, notice how it says, they own the privileges, they own the patriarchs, but they don't own Jesus. From whom? Because, see, no one owns him. But it is a great privilege to be the people from whom he came. And of all the peoples on the earth, he chose one people, and that's the Jewish people. So there is no room for anti-Semitism among Christians. To be anti-Semite is to be anti-Christ in more ways than one. Now, from whom is promised according... Now, here's what's interesting. The way he says, because the climax of all this is that last... What's the greatest privilege out of all those privileges? Which one's the greatest? The promised one. Which one is the? Which one did all the other ones point to? The promised one. Every, every privilege was pointing to this. And then when this one came, what did they do? Yeah, John puts it this way. He came to his own... And his own did not recognize him. They rejected him. They crucified him. Now, notice they expected his humanity from their race according to the flesh. They expected him to be a Jew, but when he came, they denied his deity. And yet, what does Paul blatantly say? Who is God? And in the end, they rejected his sovereignty. They said, we don't want... You know, he said, but he's the king, Pilate said, he's the king of the Jews. We have no king but Jesus. Do you see? Do you see why Paul's heart is broken? Here is a people with such great promise, with such great privileges, and the climax, the fulfillment, everything it works towards is Jesus. They expected His humanity, they denied His deity, and they rejected His sovereignty. And you know what's interesting? He says, Amen. You see, as he's going through these privileges, the Jewish Christians in Rome would have said, Amen, Amen. Amen, you Gentile Christians. We got an edge on you. Amen, amen. But a Jewish person who had not accepted Christ, when he came and said, Jesus is God, they would say, Who is overall? I'm in trouble. All right? So that leads to promises broken. And I got a question mark there. Promises broken. The wrongful conclusion concerning God and His Word. So, you have the wrongful conclusion. It would seem that something has happened. And here's the thing. Number one, has God failed to keep His promises? See, that's why He says in verse 6, but it is not as though the Word of God has failed. Has God failed to keep His promises? No. Can God be trusted? Okay, we don't know. We're, 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 this, this is the tension. Number two, has the church replaced Israel as God's chosen people? Has the church replaced? After all, Romans 8 basically says everything you promised in 9, we have in 8. And then the third question is, is Paul a traitor to his people? Because here he is saying, hey, this is how great the Jewish people are. And by the way, I'm the apostle to the who? Gentiles. Plus, for 20 years, he has this pattern that he'll go to a city. And what's the first place he goes to in a city? For 20 years, he goes to the Jewish synagogue, preaches his gospel, and gets kicked out. Well, first he gains a following. And because he gains a following, he gets kicked out. And then he sets up shop right next door. 
You know, that's like dividing a church and starting a church three blocks down, which happens. It doesn't create great harmony, okay? Is Paul a traitor to his people? Well, where's the answer to this found? The answer is found in the mystery of God's majestic mission of mercy. What you have there in your notes is Romans 9, 10, and 11 and how that plays out on how God is going to keep His promises to His people. In Romans 9, He's going to say, yes, they have these privileges. They've been elected. They've been chosen. They've been predestined. But then He's going to say in Romans 10, the problem is they rejected the coming of the promised one. They rejected but there's still a remnant of whom Paul is part of that remnant. There are Jews that accepted the promised one. And then he comes to Romans 11 where he says, Look, God will fulfill His promises literally, fully to Israel. It just hasn't happened yet. Therefore, we can trust God. And therefore, what I want you to look at and see is... That future part, the tribulation, the thousand-year kingdom, reminds us that God, the Jew, and you too are tied together in God's saving purposes. And we should be as passionate about God saving Israel as He is about saving us. And by the way, the reason we have missions conference is because God is not just saving Israel, but He is saving people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And that's what the Jews forgot. They forgot. They thought it was all about them. And, 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 and beloved, listen, we as Gentile Christians in America can think it's all about who? Us. And we forget about Pakistan. We forget about Mongolia. We forget about the Netherlands. And we say, hey, some of the, we, sometimes we say in Europe, they had their chance. And they've turned their back. Let's go to the Muslims. Let's go to the unreached. Hey, listen, we've all had chances. And God has mercy on all, and He wants the message to go out. Well, I hope you can see that what we're about to embark on involves the God, God, the Jew, and you too. And realize this, that while Jewish people as a nation have rejected Christ and they're condemned apart from Christ if they do not accept Him, the church has not replaced Israel forever. The church has not replaced Israel. He still has a purpose, and we're going to see that purpose. And while we glory in eternal security, let's, for, let's never forget that security rests on God's sovereignty and let's rejoice and rest in God's sovereignty. Let's not fear it. And then finally, as we study the mystery of God's majestic mission of mercy, I want you to be reminded, and next week we're going to look at it, that all of this is very personal and it was very practical to Paul. He was deeply broken-hearted and burdened for the lost Jewish brethren. And so I end with this question. Are you brokenhearted and burdened for your lost brethren? Are you brokenhearted and burdened for your lost neighbor, your lost co-worker, your lost friend and family? Paul was so brokenhearted... He was willing to go to hell if it could save his people. That's what we're going to look at next week. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, I am humbled, I am convicted, and I am broken, but I need further breaking. For the wonder of your sovereignty, for the grace of your salvation, and for your heart for the world. And I do not think I am alone. And so, Father, I pray that you would use this study in the weeks to come to give us the heart of the Apostle Paul, which is your heart. A heart that was willing to give your only begotten Son that lost people may know you. And, Father, may we have a heart for your chosen people, Israel. Knowing that the the Jew and us are tied together in your eternal purposes. In Jesus' name we pray. Jesus, the ultimate Jew. Jesus, the Christ that we as Christians believe in. Jesus, who is God and who is overall. It's in His name that we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.